This episode of The History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 84 of The History Files, coming to you from the second week of March 2017 here in the U.S. Pacific Northwest, not to be confused with the Canadian Pacific Northwest, which is slightly further north. Or Alaska. They consider themselves the true Pacific Northwest of the United States. Which they're is... so far west, they're east. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're trying to get this done as fast as we can because there's a big old storm coming in tonight, and that means we're probably going to lose power at some point, but that's not going to happen until, I don't know, supposed to hit us about 1 a.m. or something. So we'll see. We'll see what's going on. For those of you who may be tuning in for the first time or you're relatively new to this, we've been sort of remiss in introducing ourselves. We've gotten a little bit complacent in the last year, but some of you may be coming in fresh and thinking, who are these yahoos and what makes them think they can talk about history? Yeah, so. I'm Gordon Fry. I am a professor, well, adjunct professor of history for Navy College, and I teach U.S. history and world civilizations at um, the Navy base in Bremerton, Washington. And I'm also, I've been a history nut all my life, ever since I was a little bitty kid. So uh, now, of course, remembering that far back is history. So there it is. But I am, I've been pushed into doing this podcast by my erstwhile um, love of my life and, uh, and the chief cook and bottle washer around here, Nancy Fry. Hi. Yeah, that's that. That would be me. Yes, I I couldn't get him to write a book, so I said, "Fine, I'm gonna put a microphone in front of you and make you talk." So uh, so I tap the. So talk. I shine a light in his face and make him talk into a microphone, and he's really good at it. So so that's yeah, that's that's his skill set and my skill set. I'm just a sort of a dilettante actor, voiceover person, and now I'm a podcast producer, for for want of something else. Anyway, so that's a little bit about us. In the meanwhile, while we still have power, let's look at some newsy things. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. First of all, um, we had a listener write in to us a little while ago. Uh... Al, and I'm going to mispronounce your name. I'm sorry. It's Seer, uh, Seer or Sy- Al C. We'll just call him Al yeah, C. Al. Al wrote in and had a couple of questions. He has some great suggestions for an upcoming episode of Gordon's Gun Closet. So stay tuned for an episode on uh, Indiana Jones, the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, that sounds like that would be a lot of fun to do. And it's probably something we would have gotten to eventually anyway, but... Holy cow, what a great idea. So that'll be probably the next episode of Gordon's Gun Closet. He also asked for an update on Brass, the steampunk radio serial that I am uh, several characters in. And uh, if you're interested in that, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's a really fun, I think it's seven episodes in season one. And, or maybe it's 10. I should know since I'm in it. Boy, I'm lame. But it's a lot, a lot of fun. It's it's an alternate history drama it's victorian england and it's a victorian england in which prince albert never died so victoria is not perpetually in mourning and she is a chipper happy queen and uh and also because it's steampunk there's that is alternative yes it's very alt with a chipper happy queen victoria and it's a the adventures of this family brass lord and lady brass and their spunky children who fight crime and have all kinds of gadgets and are 
It's, it's awesome. She is a, the lady, the smart lady detective who is probably even more intelligent even than Sherlock Holmes and resents the fact that he's more famous than she is. So it's a lot of fun. I, uh, I highly recommend it. And we are in post-production on season two of Brass. It's mainly been a funding issue. Uh, just so it's been slower getting it out of post than the previous season. However, it's on the way, and when it's available to download and stream, you will find out about it here for sure. Also, just I was listening a couple weeks ago to a song by Jonathan Colton. I adore Jonathan Colton. If you're a fan of his songs like Re Your Brains or Skull Crusher Mountain, he's a, a nerd nerdy i guess nerd rock is his subgenre i don't know what you would call him nerd uh, music ner- nerdy music he's awesome and he has a, a song that's not quite so nerdy it's more historical it's called a talk with george and i just have always liked this song it's you know get out there and live your life and and take the possibilities as they come your way and and you know have adventures and it's just in general a good song and finally it dawned on me one day that this is about a real person it's not just any george he's it's a song about george plimpton and if you don't know who that is i'll have a link in the show notes but george plimpton actually did all the things that jonathan colton talks about in oh, yeah. the song he was an amazing guy he wanted to try everything mm-hmm. he was a sports writer and and uh, just generally interesting person and he believed that if you were going to write about something that you should have some experience with it so he tried everything he wrote about yeah he was uh he sounded like uh william f buckley uh but he he was friends with the kennedys in fact he was one of the guys that wrestled sirhan sirhan to the ground when um Robert Kennedy was shot. Yes, he he was a mover and shaker in high society, you know, old money Long Island family. He knew all the right people and went all the right places and was a world traveler and he really did hang out with Hemingway in Spain and the bullfighting and the things and the went you know, three rounds with Sugar Ray and all this stuff. Uh, so I, it's a good song. You can buy a copy of it on iTunes. You can, it's, um, he's got it on some of his retrospective albums. It's just a really good song. It's called A Talk With George. And I will have a link to a YouTube video of it. Jonathan Colton has made all of his songs DRM free. So anybody can mix them into music videos or do whatever they want. And someone made all I'll put a link in for this really nice video that someone did sh- with images from all these things that are talked about in the song. Lots of fun. Also, here on the PsyCon Podcast Network, we have a couple of other shows, one of which I'm on now, Moving On, that deal with historical subjects. And um, a couple of weeks ago on Moving On, we covered Persuasion, which is a, a film a 19... 19- 94 or 5 version of a Jane Austen novel of the same name. And I highly recommend that movie and I recommend that episode of Movieing On as well. Also, last week on Movieing On, we covered the outlaw Josie Wales, which is another historical topic. It takes place right after the American Civil War and it's a Clint Eastwood film. It's a super, super good movie and so we decided that since there's a lot of guns in that movie that we better do it on Gordon's Gun Closet another podcast so there will be a link to that too so we did Outlaw Josie Wales last week on Gordon's Gun Closet as well yes not only are there lots of guns some there's some of the ones that are my favorites on there so it was a it was fun to do history lives again Today's main topic is actually going to be on the Spanish Civil War, which took place from 1936 to 1939. In many ways, it was a preamble to World War II. Some of the same forces were involved in it in sort of a a much more, you know, much more minor way. But still, it was a uh, World War II in at least the European theater in microcosm. Now, the background to the war was that the um, 1936 elections of February uh, brought the so-called Popular Front into power in Spain. Spain was a, a, uh, a constitutional monarchy by this point. Uh, however, the King of Spain had seen the writing on the wall and had actually abdicated. 
And so that Boy, left... everybody was abdicating. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you had, yeah, this abdication. You had the abdication of uh, Edward the Eighth in England at the same time. But, you know, the, the royal family in Spain, they, they didn't just abdicate. They left. They went off to... Uh, Heck, I don't even remember where they went to. Anyway, they got the heck out. Well, we all know why Edward abdicated. Why did the king of Spain step down? Uh, expecting revolution oh, and be he just... taken out and shot. Oh, so he was getting out while he could. Right. And uh, this left the, the, the popular front in fairly complete power in Spain. Now, the popular front was not a single party. It was a... a uh, a coalition of leftist groups. There were some communists, there were some Trotskyites, so you have Stalinist communists, Trotskyites. You had um, anarchists and socialists, social democrats, a pretty broad spectrum. Also a lot of um, of uh, just workers' union people involved who, were, who tended generally left at that point in time. So it was a, a broad coalition on the left. However, there were still some really, really deep divisions within the country, even though there were all these, you know, there's a lot of rejoicing going on because a lot of people in Spain, the population had seen the the monarchy in league with the Catholic Church, keeping them in poverty and uh, a certain amount of tyranny, although compared to what came later, <laughs> I don't think it was nearly so bad, but I wasn't there, so I can't tell you. However, the there was a lot of dissatisfaction on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, not only were there the usual arguments between landowners and farm workers, though, you had, you know, there were the arguments between uh, factory owners and factory workers, but you also had arguments between those who would abolish the Catholic Church's strong influence in Spanish society and those who felt a deep and abiding faith within the Catholic Church. Furthermore, there were some really strong antagonisms between many of the different regions of Spain, especially the Basque regions of the north, where there was a fair amount of industry and mining, and also, well, in fact, there had been a... um, strike in 1934 among Basque mine workers, and that had been put down pretty brutally by General Francisco Franco, who we shall talk quite a bit more about in a few minutes. Um, but also Catalonia in the east, the, uh, the old kingdom of Aragon, which has a different language, a different culture. It's much closer to French or Languedoc than Spanish. And... Um, they have seen themselves as having been, you know, basically put down and um, sidelined. sidelined by the Castilians. Uh, in fact, there's still a very strong uh, independence movement by the Catalonians right now. So anyway, these things also were, even if not necessarily mentioned, there were still some pretty strong feelings going on there in a lot of different directions. Um, All these things played a role, along with some of the festering antagonisms there uh, that are going to burst forth on the world scene. You have Spain now in this microcosm of, of some of the anguish that was going on in the 1930s and became really, really bad in the 1940s, of course. So all these things played a role, along with the international scene, which was, you know, kind of festering uh, between, you know, Nazi Germany, uh, fascist Italy, uh, communist Soviet Union, and then there's Poland and Czechoslovakia trying to figure out what's going to happen to them, and France, which is having its own issues between the communists and Nazis. And so... It was a it was a rugged time, and Spain became the focal point for a lot of this stuff. So the Spanish Civil War actually began a little bit bef- um, a number of months after the election. So 
Uh, the election was in February, and in July of, eight, of 1936, I'm always going to say 18 because that's where my brain usually is. Anyway, 1936, um, there was a military mutiny. It was a, a revolt, really a coup attempt by the Spanish army um, against the Republican government. Now, some of the military refused to go along with this coup, uh, and many of the local police departments actually worked actively against it, with the uh, working with the Republican government and the various leftist organizations within their cities and the population in general. Wow, what a mess. Oh, yeah. Uh, armories were opened, and volunteers were armed, and pretty much the war was on. So it just instantly became a civil war. Instead of instead of a coup, that's a coup, and now we have a new government, it just split immediately. It split, yeah. Because it was kind of a failure, uh, I don't know if the, the, the Spanish army was didn't go hard enough, fast enough, or what, but it was it failed in its attempt to actually overthrow the this popular front government, uh, and things just went to hell in a handbasket very shortly thereafter. And now, of course, when you have war break out like that, you immediately get people rising to arms. As I said, the armories were opened. And you had a lot of, I guess you call them militias, sort of spring into existence. Independent of each other? Independent of each other, oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of the best ones and first ones were organized through the labor unions because they already had an organization in place. They already had manpower. All they needed to do was... Do training, really. Uh, but there were also a lot of militias that sort of formed up out of neighborhood alliances or kind of loose um, political affiliations. Now, this was especially true, the, the uh, union aspect was especially true in Barcelona. It was already an industrial area, and it was already pretty well su supplied with trade unionists because of that. Now, elsewhere, most of the so-called loyalist or Republican military strength was formed based on political ideals. Now, not that the union workers were not, did not have these political ideals, but they were unionists first and foremost. And, of course, there were splits between the various unions. And um, as with most political things, uh, everybody wants to know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. So you had all kinds of interesting divisions going on right off the bat. On the other hand, the nationalists were inducted into the actual army and given at least a modicum of real training. In the early months of the fighting, pretty much a lot of old grudges got paid off. Assassinations became fairly common, and Catholic monasteries and convents were looted and burned, it's really scary seeing some of the film of this. A lot of ancient corpses of long-dead priests and nuns were brought out, dragged out of the crypts, and put on display uh, out in the courtyards. Um, it sounds like this classic stuff that happens these days, at least in the United States, where someone's protesting something and it just becomes an excuse to loot. It doesn't... I mean, it yeah, sounds really... But the, the church had been seen as an oppressor oh. in a lot of ways because, you know, they, they took their tithes in the form of taxes. I mean, you were required to pay the taxes. They had a lot of people mm. in the church hierarchy and just as priests and nuns. So that took a, a huge amount of income. So the church had gotten becoming become a huge bloated bureaucracy. Oh, and it had been for hundreds of years. Yeah. And okay. You know, so that you have hundreds of years of this built-up, festering antagonism. Uh, in an increasingly secular world. In a very secular world. And it. you have a lot of the, the, the leftists who were completely secular who just saw this as a, you know, a, a good way to get rid of one of their primary opponents in, you know, political life, which was the Catholic Church. Of course, this enervates those who hated the power and influence of the, pardon me, it energized those who hated the power and influence of the Catholic Church, but it enraged those people who were still following it. So, mm -hmm. again, iconoclasm can be a great thing on to your side, but it can also really, really, really annoy your opponents. And 
you know, <laughs> it doesn't really win you a whole lot. Uh, and of course, in, as in most wars, you have outrage following outrage. Uh, every time there was a massacre, there'd be a counter-massacre. Um, civil wars are like that. Anybody who thinks that a civil war is a great idea needs to really study them. And uh, they get real ugly real fast. Uh, the worse one side becomes, the worse the other side becomes in response. So it's a giant, giant feud. Very much. Very much a family feud that's, you know, really ugly. Um, one participant noted that even at the beginning of the facilities, he said, just seeing my political opponent from across the street filled me with rage. I just wanted to go over and kill him. I'm like, what? Why? But they these, were spun up. They got spun up. People get spun up. You can't put the genie back in the bottle once the passions start running this hot. Now, some of the, of the different factions on the left side, where the, there's the international communists, in other words, the Stalinists, you know, common turn. Then there were Trotskyites, which is a different thing because, of course, Stalin and Trotsky had their split. Uh, Stalin eventually had Trotsky murdered in Mexico a few years later. You also have social democrats and, of course, the anarchists. Oh, boy. On the right, you actually had, a, had some fascists, usually referred to as phalangists. Then you had, also you had the monarchists, people who just supported the monarchy. They wanted them back. They wanted them back. You had landowners uh, and Catholics, people who simply were outraged at the horrible treatment that the Popular Front had, you know, had given to the, the Catholic priests and nuns and their corpses. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people were just completely outraged and offended by this. Corpses. Corpses. They took corpses of, you know, semi-mummified oh. bodies of these people and put them on display. Wow. In the courtyards. After setting, you know, just before they set fire to these places. It was... Wow. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Uh, the level of hate for that is hard for us to, to fathom. And... You know, although the, the original military coup against the Republican government was a, a setback, I mean, it didn't work, obviously, uh, it certainly wasn't a complete failure. Most of northern Spain still remained in the hands of the conservatives, uh, or nationalists, if you will, while the Basque country and Catalonia were firmly Republican, clear up through actually big chunks of, of uh, Castile, because obviously Madrid was still in the hands of the Republicans, and then you also had a few holdouts along the Portuguese border. Now, interest to me is this seems in some ways like a reprise of the old divide between Christian Spain in the north and Muslim Spain in the south. And although there's a lot of dissimilarities, uh, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to really, you know, beat this to death, but it's still, I think, worthy of looking at. Spain seems to go down north-south divides fairly easily. And it's, it probably goes back a long, long ways. Now, as I noted earlier, there were some international ramifications in the Spanish Civil War as well. There were various international brigades that were formed to help out the Republicans. And they were mostly made up of leftists from throughout Europe and the Americas to the tune of about 400,000 men. 400? 40, no, I'm sorry, 40,000 men. Did ah. I put 400? Nope, it says 40,000. Uh, 40,000 men, along with probably another 20,000 auxiliaries and medical personnel. One of the more famous of these brigades was the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, made up of Americans, young men from the ah. United States, who were philosophically you know, allied with the uh, leftist ambitions of the Republican government. Some were actual communists, some were merely socialists, and some were just young men who were looking for adventure. There's a whole bucket full of novels and movies that deal with this period in history mm -hmm. and deal with Americans going oh, over yeah. there and being over there and doing stuff. Absolutely. And, of course, 
you know, Ernest Hemingway got an enormous amount of of good copy out of this. He was there as a correspondent, mm-hmm. but you can tell his sympathies are definitely with the uh, with the Republicans, although he was not there as a soldier officially, at least. Um, you also have a number of freelances who were there. One such was George Orwell, who he went there with some college friends, and um, he, you know, joined one of the these uh, workers' party militia units out of Barcelona and went up to the front and took pot shots back and forth with some of the the uh, nationalists and uh, came out of it very very disillusioned. Hmm. So uh, he actually wrote directly about his experiences. He wrote more indirectly about them, of course, in 1984, the book 1984. But uh, he actually wrote about his experiences. Of course, I can't remember the name of that book, but I read it fairly recently. Um, it's it's very, very enlightening reading his commentary about that. And finally, of course, there were these sympathetic journalists, such as Ernest Hemingway, who covered the war from the Republican point of view for the most part. And what's really, it strikes me as very interesting, is that a lot of these young men from the international brigades, whether they were uh, French or English or American, during World War II, they weren't allowed to join the army at first because they were premature anti-fascists. Interesting. So you couldn't be an anti-fascist prematurely. Uh, and primarily it was because they were, you know, communists. Was that a term that was used? That was a term, premature anti-fascists. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, now, however, one of the main reasons, other than Ernest Hemingway and George Orwell, one of the main reasons the Spanish Civil War is still remembered was the use of the conflict by the Germans, the Nazi Germans and the fascist Italians on the one side and the Soviet Union on the other side for testing purposes. So this is all going on at the beginning of World War II. Just before. Just before. So it ends just about the time World War II begins. Um, Germany supplied what was called the Condor Legion, a group of soldiers and aviators who were all, of course, volunteers, who were equipped and sent by Nazi Germany to support their nominally fellow fascists, the Falangists, uh, with money, men, and materiel. Many of the flyers here that were sent there used this opportunity uh, to improve their tactics uh, and their strategies for, for future air use and just their general level of skill. The Italians sent troops into Spain, who were also nominally volunteers, to support the nationalists, but most of them were just infantry and artillery. What is interesting, though, is that on several occasions, the fascist Italians, volunteers on the one side, ended up fighting communist Italian volunteers on the other side. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Wow, you can't make this stuff up. It just, you know, if you tried to write this as a fiction or a science fiction story on some other planet, people, oh, it's way too convoluted. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Reality is very convoluted. Of course, on the other side, you had the Soviet Union, which sent money, men, and materiel as well, mostly in the form of airplanes and flyers, but some other things as well. One thing I found very interesting is they were sending food shipments, specifically to Barcelona, At the exact same time, Stalin was starving his own farmers in Ukraine. Holy cow. So it's, yeah, convoluted is right. Uh, Stalin was not not a man to emulate, I'm afraid. And then finally we have Mexico, uh, which had, of course, been a colony of of, uh, Spain and had, you know, broken away in their own um, left-wing revolt in 1821, um, Mexico and the post-revolu- post-Mexican Revolution period was fairly left-wing, uh, but um, the uh, they they sent some support as well. Nothing nearly to the extent that any the others did, though. Not really terribly long into the fracas, probably within the six months of the failed coup. 
General Francisco Franco, who was the commander of the Spanish Army of Morocco by this time, and that's a weird story in and of itself. He had actually been sent by the Republican government to Morocco to get him out of the area so he wouldn't be sort of he wouldn't be fomenting, you know, any issues, any problems. Uh, so they sent him to Morocco. However, he brought his army, the the Spanish army of Morocco, to Spain oh. to take part in the Civil War. Oh, my goodness. One thing I really want to make note of, though, is how he got them there. They were transported by the German government. The German Air Force, German Luftwaffe, uh, sent a huge number, I don't remember how many, but it was many, many, um, of their uh, Fokker trimotor transport airplanes, and they flew them down first to the Canary Islands and then over to Morocco and uh, then flew these troops straight back up to southern Spain where they had, had a bridgehead, and they pushed their way north to meet up with the rest of the nationalists in northern Spain. Um, so it seems like a lot of other governments and countries were sticking their fingers in this conflict. Yeah, especially Germany, Italy, and Russia. They were the primary ones sticking their nose in it. But, you know, again, this was communism, international communism versus socialism, national socialism, uh, which, of course, fought tooth and nail. I am going to interject here something that I like to pound people on is that national socialism or fascism, whichever you want to call it, is not a right wing thing. It is a left wing it's a form of socialism. In fact, Joseph Goebbels said when they invaded Russia, now, now we shall teach the Russians how real socialism works. The National Socialists simply hated the international communists, and the international communists hated the National Socialists because they were, they were both heretics toward, to the real truth. Um, the big difference was that the National Socialists could portray themselves as nationalists and therefore get the right right wing, the military, to support them. That didn't mean that they were actually right wing. They simply got some right wing support from that, or at least acquiescence. So once Franco got his Moroccans, his African troops, uh, into Spain, these guys were hardened, battle-tested veterans, and they pretty much could push their way right through the haphazard militias of the of the uh, um, of the of the Republican forces. So, even though there were some fairly hard-fought battles, uh, usually the mm. the Republicans lost. There was a big fight over Madrid, though, that Franco wasn't able to actually win the first time. And it actually ended, uh, the battle lines were right through the middle of the university in Madrid. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is really kind of strange and, and interesting. But, uh, yeah, they had to come back and revisit, revisit that a little later. One of the greatest tragedies of the Spanish Civil War, though, is, of course, the bombing of Guernica in the Basque country in the north. Uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with the painting. Exactly. By, um, by Pablo Picasso. Picasso titled Guernica. It's a huge, huge painting. Huge painting in which he, he tries to convey some of the horror and the brutality of what went on, um, but it doesn't quite get there. It's, it's really too horrid to be able to convey what this was. And what it was was one of the first really successful attempts at terror bombing with airplanes by, you know, of civilian targets. The Germans and the British had engaged in a little bit of that in World War One, the Zeppelin bombings of London. The British, I think they bombed Antwerp back, and it it wasn't good, but the Germans had learned a few things by this time, and they they smashed, they flattened Guernica. And the death toll was 
pretty darn high. And, of course, it was all civilians. It was civilians. This was terror bombing. Now, it doesn't mean that... As opposed to strategic bombing. Right. As, you know, well, arm, it, armies going after each other. This was a, an effort to demoralize, I guess. Right. It is strategic bombing. It's an attempt to destroy the public's support. Ah. And that's exactly what the Germans did during the Blitz of London, and it's exactly what the British in the United States later did to Germany and Japan uh, in later years of World War II, is to destroy the morale of the country and the, the support that civilians give by, by terror. By you know, just outright By terror, inflicting terror, inflicting terror on them with, with uh, these you know huge air raids, bombing raids. Uh, eventually, the army under Franco managed to drive the Republican forces apart in the south, and then they mopped them up piecemeal. Droves of these Republican volunteers, including such individuals as uh, George Orwell, fled to France. Well, in Madrid, a mini-civil war actually broke out between the communists and the various socialists who weren't actually in total agreement with them. At that point, Franco's forces were able to capture Madrid and the Republican government, which had actually remained in power for those four years, or three years, had to flee to France. The Spanish Civil War actually teaches us a lot of interesting lessons. One of which is, it's never simply between two sides. That's a very simplistic way to look at it, uh, which most people want to do because it's easier. But first off, it to me at least, it's very highly doubtful that Francisco Franco, or even a whole lot of his followers, were actual fascists. I believe that they were fervent nationalists and Catholics who were de- determined to defend their culture and their religion, and were more than happy to accept aid from the fascists, pretty much the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But I don't think that, well, we'll get into that. A lot of the landowners who, you know, they were involved in order to, to make sure that the property that they had inherited from their ancestors wasn't divided and sold off, you know, to profit the state. And likewise, a lot of the Republicans, um, although some of them were probably members of Comintern, the Communist Party International, um, but most were just socialists and a fair number of anarchists in there. And what's kind of funny is there was one town that was actually taken over by the anarchists, and they refused to govern it <laughs> because, well, that was... That's anti-anarchy to govern something. Right. You can't, you know, you got to be true to your principles. So back up a sec. You, you, the land, the thing about the landowners, it ended up being a sentence fragment. Oh, sorry. Uh, so they, the landowners didn't want to see their property divided and sold off or uh, acquired by the state. Right. So they were supporting... The, they were supporting Franco. So they supported Franco. Right. Because most of them were old families of wealthy, sure. strong Catholics, and, um, you know, the, the peasants revolting has, you know, always been, you know, a fear. So those are the Republicans. They're no, those the, they're supporting the nationalists. So they're the nationalists, and right. the Republicans the re- are the Are ones, the left. Are the, or the left who were fighting the guerrilla fighters and the... In general, in yes. General. Okay. Right. Because the nationalists, Franco, they mm-hmm. had the army. The Republicans or the left, they actually had the government, but no really organized, truly organized form so of I'm I'm conflict. representing the people in the audience whose knowledge of the Spanish Civil War is basically being gleaned from watching movies like Pan's Labyrinth or, or you know. Farewell to Arms, or you know, basically from popular literature and and cinema. So I, you know, and and anytime somebody does a piece of fiction on something like that, they're going to have their own personal bias, mm-hmm. and they're going to paint the good guys to be who they want to paint. Now, I don't know if I, I don't know if there's any fiction out there that paints 
Franco and the Nationalists as the good guys. Oh no, no, there isn't. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. Yeah, it's always it's always. But on the other hand, I think oftentimes it sounds like we oftentimes get a a kind of a homogenized view of the opposition like you say there's not just two sides there were a whole bunch of different angles to the nationalists well several different angles to the Mm -hmm. nationalist side and a lot of fractured independent sometimes conflicting oh yeah forces um so on on the other side each side would take people out and shoot them Mm -hmm. you know just because well you know, you harbored some fugitives from the other side, so we're going to sure. take everybody in the village out and shoot them. Um, that happens right and left in civil wars, and the Spanish Civil War was certainly, you know, not exempt from that by any well, and, means. Well, and and also what I what I'm what I was getting at is that it sounds like on the on the um, the left side, the side that's fighting against the nationalists, mm-hmm. they they there were some conflicting goals there. And conflicting Lots. creeds, Lots. and and different approaches to what they were trying to do and how they were trying to do it. Right, because it's, it's not just it's not just the rebel alliance versus you know Darth Vader no. and the Empire. It's no. much more complicated than that. Yeah, because the the coalition that was governing was mostly social democrats, with a smattering here and there of some communists, but for the most part they were socialists. Um, and probably not evil people by any means. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people on the nationalist side just wanted to keep their, you know, their culture and their status quo. And they mm-hmm. were believers in the Catholic Church and just wanted to keep things the way they were. And then you get, you know, demagogues from either side stirring things up. And then you get a guy like Franco who comes in and said, no, we're going to solve this. We're going to stop this. It's going to end, and I'm going to end it. So then on top of that, you get the international interference. We're helping. We're helping. Uh, Of course, they took the opportunity to try out their various things, sort of like, you know, international politics in the Middle East right now, you know, helping out in other people's civil civil wars um, to further their own interests. So you have the Germans sending money, men, and materiel, rifles, airplanes, artillery to support the nationalists. You have the Italians who did the exact same thing, who had almost a full-on invasion of Spain. Well, they um, were nearby. They were nearby. You had well, it's not like Spain didn't own half of half of Italy for a couple hundred years. Then you have Mexico sending some aid, and of course the Soviet Union sent money and food first and then airplanes and rifles and advisors. But most of the aid came in the form of these international volunteers who, for the most part, came on their own looking for adventure or to support their beliefs, etc. Within that milieu, you have the tactics of World War II being wargamed in Spain. The Germans and the Russians testing each other and testing each other's tactics in certain ways. Um, one of the results of this was the increase in the use of close air support by the German army, with, and Luftwaffe working in, in combination, and an increase in this terror bombing of civilian ta- targets. Also, the extraordinarily, pardon me, the extraordinary usefulness of submachine guns in combat, especially urban combat, was noted, uh, and the Russians and the Germans, and even the Italians, had, were way ahead of the Allies in this. A submachine gun is basically a carbine that fires a pistol cartridge uh, on full automatic, something like a Thompson submachine gun or the, the German Schmeiser MP40. And the Germans and the Russians especially recognized this, and so they ended up making millions of them during World War II. Millions? Millions of submachine guns. Absolutely. In fact, Germans, pardon me, the Russians had entire battalions armed with nothing but submachine guns or tank riders. Um, the, there's also the role of the media that we sort of briefly talked about. For the most part, 
uncensored news was sent out to countries such as Britain and the U.S., although there was a pretty strong leaning of sympathy for the Republicans. And then you have, because of a lot of this, because of the media's reports, you get all these international volunteers choosing to fight for progress. Sometimes it was for communism or whatever ideal they were. And the propagandists took note of this. Now about Franco, was he a fascist? Again, hard to say. I think he was very happy to take the aid that Hitler and Mussolini were offering him. But I want to make note that he did not return the favor in World War II. He kept Spain neutral. And stuff like, you know, the Great Escape and stuff. People are trying to make it to Spain. Now, Spain was neutral more or less on the side of the Germans, but not entirely. Hitler tried to pressure Franco into it, but Franco was smart enough to avoid (laughs) meeting up with Hitler, and Hitler finally got disgusted and left before the meeting because Franco was keeping him waiting for so long. Franco did provide troops. He allowed volunteers to go to join the German SS, but he didn't actually, and he made plenty of weapons. You know, he allowed German, or pardon me, Spanish gunmakers to supply plenty of weapons, but he wasn't going to violate his neutrality too much more than that. So that must, excuse me, that must have ruffled some feathers amongst the allies. It's like you're, he wasn't being perfectly neutral. He was. Well, they were happy that he wasn't actually joining. Okay. (laughs) I think they were more than happy that they could count on him to not be uh, an active participant. Now, part of the reason probably was that Spain was devastated from three years of civil war. But part of it was Franco knew that if he got involved too deeply with Hitler, um, there was no way out. Mm. Sort of like when, you know, Spain sort of allowed the French to go through Spain to attack uh, Portugal in the Napoleonic Wars, and the French stayed. (laughs) Ah, It's like being sort of pregnant. Yeah. You're either all in or you're not. Yep. So my take on him is he was pretty much an O-line, very conservative Spanish monarch in the mold of Philip II. Uh, And he used the political fervor of his followers as an aid to that goal in keeping Spanish culture alive (laughs) and in the past. Philip II being... Being Felipe. He was the king of Spain. What year are we talking about? Uh, He was the one that wooed and fought Elizabeth. Okay, so he's 16th century king. Yep, 16, well, if you want the years, he was king from 1558 to 1598. There you go. How's that? It's, I'm just being devil's advocate for <laughs> yep. the people who don't know who Philip II is. You're supposed to know who Philip II is. Well, I do, but I'm being devil's <laughs> Everybody's advocate. supposed to know. <clears throat> the problem when you know too much of a certain subject, you assume everybody else does. You, you take a lot for granted. <laughs> oh, well. That's okay. So... There we have it, another civil war to consider and to ponder some of its roots. The biggest takeaway I have from this is the the ease in which things can get started and get out of hand. Um, well, it goes back to that passions running high thing, too. Of course yes. they're going to get out of hand if people are bursting into flames every time they see someone on the yeah, other side. But it hadn't been a year before, and that's the problem. Things just can go fast. The tinder starts getting laid down, and... Passions start to rise, and then all it takes is the right spark. People can put up with a lot of stuff for a while. And then some something innocuous, boom, sets it off. Now, in this case, it wasn't innocuous. It was a coup attempt by the Army. Kind of the, overt. Kind of overt. But it certainly, uh, it certainly got things rolling. Um, but just to get it started... You know, even beforehand, you have political parties using invective and disinformation against their enemies. That kind of sounds familiar. Yeah, it kind of sounds familiar, (laughs) exactly. And then when the military stood up and said enough of this uh, to the newly formed Republican government, well, in the words of John Milton of Paradise Lost, all hell broke loose. Somewhere in the neighborhood of a million people perished in that war. Some starved to death. Some were, you know, died in the pestilence that follows in the wake of armies. Um, Some claim only a mere 500,000, but, you know, that's just combat related. 500,000 people in a country that small is 
hefty big deal. That was a big deal. A million is a huge deal. Uh, I watched a, a documentary on the Spanish Civil War that was actually filmed right around, I guess it was the late 70s, which I found very interesting because it was filmed 40 years ago, and that had been 40 years since the end of that war. And so they're interviewing people who took part in it. Wow. And even though it was 80 years ago to us, here's these people sitting there in full color discussing what was going on there. Yeah, it really wasn't that long ago. No, it really wasn't. Um, Spain ended up languishing under this dictatorship of Franco for almost 40 years. But in the end, in 1970, Franco made... Juan Carlos, Prince Juan Carlos of the royal house, his heir, his successor. And so when Franco died in 1970, it was 1974-75, Juan Carlos became king of Spain. So we're back to a monarchy. Back to a monarchy. So that's what Franco wanted. I think he wanted to make Spain stable enough that the monarchy could oh. then come back and continue on. Hmm. And now there's talk about playing the long game. Oh, he played a long game. And of course, in the 70s, there was always the joke of, you know, General Franco is still dead yeah. because there had been many premature um, reports of his demise. Ah, uh, okay, but, that's where that comes Yeah, from. Chevy Chase made a career based on mm -hmm. General Franco is still dead. But at any rate, Juan Carlos became the king. And a constitutional monarchy was reinstated in Spain, and it continues still to this day. So, very, very interesting result for that Spanish Civil War. So, there's your whirlwind tour through the Spanish Civil War. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Show notes for this episode can be found at sicon.fm slash thf84. And the History Files wouldn't be possible without your support. We're especially grateful to our patrons who support us through Patreon. You know who you are. Another way to help us out, and no less important, is ratings and reviews. We really appreciate stars or even a short review at iTunes or wherever you get our shows. Be sure and check out our new show, What's in a Name? It's a relatively short podcast, unlike this one today. It's about 10, runs about 10 to 15 minutes when we look at the origins of the name of a place or a thing. This, uh, this week we'll be looking at the city of Astoria. And new episodes of that go up every other Saturday, mostly, and are available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or at sicon.fm slash W-I-A-N. Well, thank you for listening to yet another of our episodes. And please tune in next time for another exciting adventure in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.